I'm going to be reading from um, the Book of Lamentations, chapter 3. And I'll be reading, I'll be going through all the way from verse 1 through verse 24. Um, and this is the Word of God. Let's read that. Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and, and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he, hurt, he turns his hands again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrow. He drove me into the kidneys. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. Verse 15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. And therefore, I will hope in him. This is God's word. Amen. So if we were to describe the year of 2019 with one word or one sentence or one phrase, what would that be for us, right? For some, it would be hectic, right? For others, it would be uneventful. For others, for some, it would be confusing. And for others, maybe successful and fulfilling. For some, maybe it was full of suffering and pain. And for others, maybe full of pleasant surprises. But whatever it is that described your 2019, we did know, we did know something at the beginning of that year. We were sure about something. We knew for sure that we do not know. We just don't know what God has in store for us. And we do not know how we're going to come out at the end of every single year. We know that for sure. We might finish the year with an accomplished sense of spiritual growth. Or maybe we feel like it was a year full of those type of like one step forward, two step backwards type of seasons. Maybe this year felt like you're stuck in a plateau with no progress spiritually. 
we know ourselves and we know our inconsistencies in our failures, in our sins. And we know that the new year could bring many new failures and new drawbacks. But so with this certainty of the uncertainty, we are clearly aware of the fact that reliance on self would not, will not cut it. Our trust for the past and for the present and for the future is only found outside of ourselves. And we know that as believers. As believers, we are reminded that our reliance must be on God alone. And in Him, we find our trust for the things that are already passed and for the things that we are going through and for the year that's ahead. We know to trust Him because He is perfectly faithful. And His faithfulness it's something that's been in my mind throughout this year uh, as we faced many drawbacks and many tribulations and many joys as well. All that combination of things. So in this last Sunday of 2019, I, wanna, I want us to meditate on the faithfulness of God. And I want us to meditate on it, not it's in this brief message, not in a way in which we can dissect the many dichotomies and trichotomies of the implications of God's character as it is found in God's faithfulness for our lives, as the preacher and theologian so-and-so said it, which is important and it's a good foundation. But how is God faithful to you in your struggle, to you in your relationships, to you on how you view life? Let us remember that we can never grow out of the Word of God. We can never be smarter. We are to receive this as babies, passionately, as children, trusting in our Father. So please, let us remember God's faithfulness together as we study the Word of God. One biblical dictionary defines God's faithfulness as this, as God's perfect loyalty and consistency in being true to His name and His character in his word. Once again, let me read that for you. This is God's perfect loyalty and consistency in being true to his name and his character and his word. The faithfulness of God is perfect. He is never disloyal. It's never conflicting in his word and promises. And this is huge for us, right? As his children, as, as beneficiaries of this, of his character, because we're depending on him and trusting in him and his never failing character to act on our behalf through all of our lives, and especially in the times of trial. So imagine how important it is for us as believers to understand the fact that God is perfect in his faithfulness to us. Because we know the opposite example. We know that we have maybe trusted in someone close to us and they have betrayed us. They were not consistent in their promise. They were not consistent in their trust. And we are disappointed. But it is so important for us to know today that we have someone, God, our Father, who we can trust in, who is constantly perfect in His faithfulness to our lives. We've proven, as I said over and over again, as limited human beings, that we are quite the opposite, right? We are unfaithful. We fail at remaining cons consistent with our character and with our word and, 
And this is especially true of re close relationships like in marriage, right? We can see the, the uh, inconsistencies in which we sometimes surprise each other with a, a nice uh, season of good relationship. And then there's a little season there of trouble and agony. And we can see that example that even though we go back and forth in our inconsistencies, we try more and more to love and to be trusted and to trust. And we fall short many times of being consistent. And the Bible portrays many, many times what this failure looks like, right? Even from the time of the garden, even from the time of the probationary period, we can see how in this garden, Adam, who represented us as an example of infidelity to God and his command. And then we contrast that with God's perfect example of mercy and faithfulness and how he provided mercy to them and provided redemption and promised redemption through, through a second Adam from that time. Moving on to other times, other leaders who were inconsistent in their character as representatives of God, the people of Israel also, and even Moses at a point that were disobedient and ungrateful to God, even while God was consistent in his word to them. And yet still, God brought them to the promised land, right? And even after God consistently showed his love and providence, the people still failed to follow him and obey him. So the promised judgment, the promised judgment of God was in place for them. So God is consistent in his mercy, but God is also consistent in his judgment. God is just. And this is the very specific example that we find in our reading that I just read today in the book of Lamentations. This book was written as a poetical memoir of the devastation of the destruction of Jerusalem under the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And so that's why I said that we're not too, too far from our study in Nehemiah because Nehemiah happened in around, uh, Nehemiah went back to, his, to Judah in about 444 B.C. And so we're talking about the book being written in a 80 to 100 year period. Now that sounds like a long time, but in the big scheme of the timeline, it's, it's kind of close by. And so Imagine a Jeremiah who was part of those people who were remaining in Jerusalem before he was made to be exiled to Egypt. But before that, as he was in destroyed Jerusalem, in devastated, trashed Jerusalem in a very dark period of time. As a result of the Babylonians, as I said, Jerusalem was basically trashed, right? The most valuable possession of their temple was being destroyed. Their people were starving and being tortured. Their leaders were nowhere to be seen. Their prophets, some dead, some in hiding, some imprisoned. Imagine, we, 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 we can see this in a way that is just literature, but imagine your children dead, your close ones being imprisoned, your friends starving in the streets, your God seemed to be absent. Your worship temple being destroyed. This was a very dark time for the people of God. As a result of God's faithfulness. Because he was faithful to also 
sends judgment to them. And in the midst of this, the book of Lamentations meditates on it. And so we can see in the structure of Lamentations in, from chapter 1, this metaphorical daughter of Zion, as we see it in the first chapters, a representation of Jerusalem. And it, it, it meditates on how she, it was, she was once a princess, on how she was once a regarded one. Now she's a slave. It laments how her majesty has departed from her. She mourns while her enemies prosper. In the first two chapters, we can read that poetically and grieve the fact that God's people had sinned and that the just judgment of God was finally upon them. And he does pounder in that in those chapters. Well, he does recognize, the author recognizes, Jeremiah recognizes that God was justly judging them. And it's interesting how that literature works because it's, it's a very beautiful Hebrew, poetical Hebrew work where you can see a structure to the book. And it's interesting because as you see uh, the words of the uh, uh, alphabet in Hebrew are being put in portions in, ve in a very logical order. In Aleph, Bed, Sed, and all of the ones. I forgot my Hebrew letters now, but all of them go in order. But at the end of the book, it seems to be gone. That order is gone. In a way, it's saying even the literature of the book itself, it's even saying, you know what? Even the authors say, I can't even keep up with order anymore because of this devastation. So even the form of literature tells us something about trying to keep order and harmony in a very chaotic situation. So we can even see the heart behind the author and, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as well. It laments in these chapters. And so as we move on to chapter 3 of Lamentations, this Jeremiah who was sitting, he actually turns to first person now and in, a, in, a, in a both end kind of ways, he is representing Israel by saying he is a man, a man of sorrows. And he himself experiences that because we have, as we read, even he says that he feels like God has closed in. And there is some accounts of Babylonian prisons that were basically made in such a way that you were closed in and couldn't even move your joints in a very agonizing situation. So a lot of these metaphorical situations were also literal. In a way, were also a picture of what was going on, a very real picture of what was going on in the judgment of God in the people, through the people of uh, Jerusalem there. And so this man who has seen the affliction under the rod of God, wrath of, wrath of God, is seen in chapter 3. He speaks of having heavy chains, as I said, and helplessness. And as I said, it's a very literal and metaphoric picture of the situation. He also talks about dwelling in darkness, about being the laughing stocks of all people, the object of our taunts every day. So it's not even like problems around you. It's even relational problems. It's physical problems, spiritual problems. It's the worst of the worst. Even in chapter 17, look how sad this is. He says, I have forgotten what happiness is. How can one forgotten what happiness is? So we pretty much get the atrocity of the time by now. But then we move to verse 21. And this is the verse that everybody likes to quote, right? This is the one that it's in everybody's, uh, you know, refrigerator and in everybody's uh, cars and everywhere and in your bookmarks and, and in your uh, Instagram feed. Um, 
This is the one, right? But then the, 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 the author turns in verse 21 and says, and this grieving man focuses now on an aspect of God. Now he turns to the theology of it and ends up with the doxology of it. He, he turns to God and recognizes who he is, and then he praises him. And then he starts to call God's mercies and faithfulness. One commentator mentions this about the contrast of concepts found in chapter 3. He says this, If God is consistent enough to bring his justice on human evil, then he will also be consistent with his covenant promise not to allow evil to get the final word. So for this poet, God's judgment is the seedbed of hope in the future. The author expounds through all those chapters how the judgment of God was consistent. And then in, in, in verse 21, he says, but also God's mercies are consistent to us. So in the same way that we can clearly see God's judgment consistently displayed through our fallen world, we also see that God is also consistent in steadfast love, in steadfast love and compassion. And this is all due to his never-failing faithfulness. The prophet Hosea as well speaks of this. God remains faithful to his people Israel in spite of their sins and faults. His characters, whether it is in righteousness or in justice or in love or mercy, all these aspects of his characters never fade and never fail. And we can see that in Hosea 2, 19 and 20 where he says, I will take you to be my wife forever, says God. To his people Israel, how faithful is God to his people? Remember now, this is, we are talking about the relationship of God as the husband and of Israel as the bride, that it will become the church as well. And we see that how many times Israel was unfaithful to God. Remember that in Jewish tradition, there was a paper of divorce that was being, that was being given justly whenever there was unfaithfulness. And God basically said he took the paper of unfaithfulness. But then God faithfully takes it away and says, but I want you to be my bride again. And I will make you a virgin again. I will cleanse you again. Because God is so faithful to us. Even though we have been so unfaithful to him. Look what it says in Hosea 2, 19, 20. I will take you to be my wife forever despite unfaithfulness. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. So even though the picture that the author is painting here is brutal, and even though he expresses his feelings through lament, this never betrays the fact that God has been always faithful to his own. And the poet of... of Lamentations here affirms this in verses 31 to 33, where he says, chapter 3, 31 and 33, For the Lord will not cast off forever. You see there, the Lord is just, yes, but the Lord will not cast off forever. But he, but though he cause grief, he says, he will have compassion according to the abundance of this, of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. What a beautiful promise of God. Though he cause grief justly, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his 
steadfast love. And remember, we have a God that never fails in that steadfast love, right? What if we had a God who was moved by our, our responses, by our sins and faults? What if, we were, what if he was moved by what we, how we responded to certain things? Then it would look a little bit differently, right? It would say, well, God would respond according to you have done, to what you have done. His love is depending on you, on, what, on how you perform. But we know that is not the case. The love of God never fails. And that's a powerful picture that the author of Lamentations is portraying for us. Keep in mind, again, that we just read 20 verses in even the earlier chapters, focusing on a very sorrowful atrocity in a very dark period for the people of Israel. And yet, in the midst of all this, the author acknowledges that God has been faithful, even though they have poverty and affliction in the midst of them. So what we can learn from this is that not only in the moments of abundance and wealth and health, we recall the faithfulness of God, but it is especially in the moments of agony and despair that we must remember God's consistent character of mercy and love. In these difficult moments, when we must call to mind, as it says in that verse, who God is and that God is for us, and so going back to those verses in 21, we see, we see this. He says, but, I, but this I call to mind. Maybe in that prison, maybe in that agony, maybe as he is agonizing for family members, whatever the case is. But this I call to mind, he says. He recalls something. He remembers something. There is something in his heart, in his being. And this says, and therefore I have hope. Wouldn't you like to have hope in the midst of darkness, in the midst of agonies? He says this. I call this into mind, and therefore I have hope. And therefore I can move on with my God. He says this in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And so the author stops here in, his, in the midst of his agony and in the midst of his pain. He says, I know that the love of God never ceases. I recognize that God is immutable. He never changes, that he is always consistent, that he will always love his people. And he goes even more specifically saying that his mercies, right? Even though we're bad, we are messed up. He is merciful, and those mercies never end as well. Remember, it's not like, so, you know, we've heard the phrase, well, it depends how the boss woke up that morning. That's how he's going to treat us today, right? Whether he put the, the wrong leg in the wrong side of the bed. Oh, what, what, what is it? I don't know what kind of phrase they have. Something like that, right? So it depends on his mood, and then that's how he's going to treat us. We can, we're not going to, we will never be able to say that about God, Amen. He is always consistent. His love is always the same. He never changes. And that is awesome to think about how horrible it is to have a theology in which we can think that we can change God's mind about us because of our performance. And so he recognizes theology by saying God never moves and his love 
And his mercy never comes to an end. And then he says this, they are new every morning. The author makes it clear that God's mercy and compassion and love never end. Not even during the fall of Jerusalem. Not even during the starvation of his people. Not even during the death of loved ones. Even, he even specifies that God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are just not there sitting idly, right? They, these mercies of God are specifically, listen to this, specifically crafted, specifically molded, specifically made for you and your day and your situation and your season of life. Wow. The mercies of God are new every single day. So sometimes we, in error, try to rely on mercies that are not for that day. I was listening to a a preacher earlier preaching on this here, and he was talking about that we have to think about God's mercies that are for today and not pretend that they appropriate the ones for tomorrow, for today. Remember what Matthew says, right? That each day has its own trouble. And so we rely on God's mercies for the trouble of today and trust God's mercies that are there for tomorrow, for the mercies and for the troubles and for whatever happens for tomorrow, because God's mercies will be renewed for that day of trouble. He was talking about this. He said, if you ask me right now and today, would you die as a martyr? Would you be taken to the fire or to the torture today? Well, I probably will say no. But I know that God's mercy is renewed every day. So at that moment, at that moment, when that would happen hypothetically, I know God's mercies are new every day, and I know he will carry me through, and I know that I will love him and be for him unto death. You see, we cannot appropriate what can hypothetically happen and just live in the day according to God's mercies, trusting God for the day. Let's stop building this anxiety around us based on what could happen and how about let's trust God above that? Because we're putting our character, you know, hand in hand with God's character. And that is a very dangerous thing to do for us to think that we can do something outside of relying from God. So we are to live in the day because God's mercies are new for today. So we've heard it before. I don't know what the future will bring. I don't know what failures will bring. But I know that today God's mercies are here for me. And I know that today I will live for him and that today I will glorify him and then wake up tomorrow and say the same thing because Monday, Monday mercies are there and then Tuesday mercies will be there. And I bet that carried him through Jeremiah through his season of life. And then after he talks about that and he says this, Great is thy faithfulness. He moves on from the theology to the doxology. He now praises God. He moves on to God. He says, your now. Great is your faithfulness. He says, I can see now. I call this into mind. I have hope now. You never cease. Your love never ceases. Your mercies never end. In fact, they are new every day. Oh God, great is your faithfulness. I recognize that you never fail. And then because of all that, he goes to the application, and then he says, the Lord is my portion. 
the, the word there, portion, talks about an inheritance. The people of Israel were given an inheritance, a portion of the land, when they inherited the, the promised land. And they were given that to possess it, to be theirs. It's all they had, is yours. Work it, be with it, be for it, defend it, protect it. It's yours. Remember what he told the Levites, that the, their portion was going to be the Lord. And the same way Jeremiah confesses that, and he says, my God is my portion. He is my inheritance because I know that he never fails me, because I know that his love is forever, because I know he's the only reliable source. He is my inheritance. I cannot put my trust in anything else. Everything else would rot. Everything else would, rot. Everything else would be rusty. No pun intended. Moth and rust destroy. And God is my only immovable inheritance. I wonder how much stress and anxieties and agonies we have as a result of not hoping in this. As a result of not seeing God as our portion, our only valuable possession. Maybe with forget about this faithfulness of God, of his unfailing love and steadfast love. A.W. Pink helps us see this with three important aspects of apprehending the blessing of God's truth, of God's faithfulness. And it's a little long, but he sees three aspects. And so let me read this to you as we are getting close to a close here. of this blessed truth will preserve us from worry, he says. To be full of care, to view our situation with dark forebodings, to anticipate the morrow with sad anxiety is to reflect poorly on the faithfulness of God, he says. He who has cared for his child through all the years will not forsake him in old age. He who has heard your prayers in the past will not refuse to supply your need in the present emergency. Rest on, on Job 5.19 where he says, He shall never deliver thee in six troubles. Ye, yea, in seven, there shall no evil touch you. Secondly, he says, The apprehension of this truth will check your murmurings or your slander or gossipings or complainings or... The Lord knows what is best for each one of us. And one effect of resting on this truth will be the silencing of our petulant complainings. Ouch. God is greatly honored when under trials and, chast and chastening, we have good thoughts of him, vindicate his wisdom and justice, and recognize his love in his very rebukes. So the apprehension, the appropriation of the truth of God's faithfulness will keep us from murmuring and complaining because we know that he has, knows what's best for us. Because we know that for all who love him, all things work for good, right? And it says a very important thing about that is God is greatly honored, he says, when that happens, when we still have good thoughts of him. In his wisdom and his justice, we are honoring God as we trust in him during our difficulties. And then thirdly, he says, the apprehension of this truth will beget increasing confidence in God, he says. Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit 
the keeping of their souls in him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. As 1 Peter 4.19 says, when we trustfully resign ourselves and all of our affairs into God's hands, fully persuaded of his love and faithfulness, the sooner shall we be satisfied with his providences and realize that he does all things well. Amen. And so picking up from verse 24 where he says, let it be my portion. That is the prayer that I want us all to pray for our souls. The same one that the psalmist prayed in chapter 73, 26, where he said, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That as we know, as we call into mind, and therefore we have hope, let it be known then that because we know that he's faithful, that he is my only portion and my only inheritance. Even though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we want to make this our prayer? Brothers and sisters, our hope must be found in knowing that God is faithful and that we can declare that he's our own portion forever. We can declare that to our soul. If you are to uh, declare something, that has a bad connotation a lot in our circles, right? But I'll tell you what, you can declare that on your soul. You can declare the word of God into your soul and say, the, the Lord is my portion. The love of God never ceases. We must believe that God continually sustains everything and all his work is done in faithfulness, as he says in Psalm 23, 33, 4. Where he says, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Everything that he does is done in faithfulness. So every time, as W. Pink says, every time we try to even per murmur or complain, we think, we must think all his works are done in faithfulness. We must know that God keeps his commandments to all generations. So the, this faithfulness of God is seen at the macro level and in the, at the microscopic level too. We see in Deuteronomy, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast loves with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It's timeless. We remember that God is not only faithful, like I said, at the macroscopic level, but also in our own lives. He is faithful to you personally, to you as a person. He is not a distant guardian who occasionally peeks into the world to make sure that everybody's doing all right. No, he is faithful to you. He preserves you. He sustains you. If Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Ain't that a beautiful truth? Let us praise God then for his ability to faithfully sustain each one of us in the middle of a messy and falling world. So for many of us in 2019, there's been a, a year with many challenges personally, with family, with jobs, with our church. In the midst of these many transitions and many departures and many drawbacks, we can only say one thing. And that is that God is faithful. He has not left us 
He has not forsaken us. He has allowed for his people, and more specifically this church and this church family, to persist in this city. Amen? Cornerstone has been here by God's grace and his faithfulness. And all of it is because for his glory to be shown and for his word to be preached and for his gospel to be shared and for his love to be displayed through the life and fellowship of the brethren. Praise God for that. We've endured together in this place because God is faithful, not because of us. He actually, it's in spite of us that God is faithful. We are imperfect in judgment, in love, in faithfulness, in mercy. We are imperfect in consistency, in sacrifice for one another. We've made many mistakes, but one thing we all know here and is that God's grace is sufficient for us and his power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, we can boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. It is about him and not us. So let us be encouraged now for 2020, right? In, the, in our devotion to him, know that it is not about checking or marking boxes, right? But about constantly relying constant reliance in God's character. In your relationships, as you purpose to be a better husband or a better wife or a better father or mother or friend, know that you will fail, but take refuge that God's never-ending provisions of mercy are new every single day for you to get through the day, for you to be able to serve your relationships in a godly way, for his glory, for you to be able to serve your God and remember your brethren and those who are in need. As we remember the humble servant who laid it all down for those whom he loved, our Lord Jesus Christ, who sacrificed it all, who remained faithful until the end, even as he was agonizing in pain, saying, if this is to be taken from me, Please take it, Lord, but your will be done. I rely in you. You are faithful until the end, and our Lord Jesus was faithful until the end. What if, what if Jesus was kind of doubtful about his dying for us? What if he depended on how good we are? He was faithful. Let us remember his example. And I want, to, I want us to recall once again Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. This keeps coming to us. That verse, even after we talked about it in the book of Hebrews, it keeps coming. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And so knowing that, knowing that we call this into mind, like Jeremiah said, knowing that this gives us hope, knowing that this is without wavering, knowing that he who promised is faithful, which is the very thing he meditates on, we have hope, we know he's a portion, and therefore, verse 24, let's apply it now. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. This is the very thing right here. Knowing that God is good, we get through our tribulations and our pains, and then we continually serve sacrificially one another and love one another. There is an inseparable connection between our hope and our good 
works for one another. Because we have hope, we work for him. Just in conclusion, I want us to remember the words of Paul to Timothy as well, when he reminds him of God's faithfulness in spite of us and our failures. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. He says, remember Jesus Christ, he says, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Amen. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign. We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he contrasts. He says he will also deny us. But even though us believers, we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He is who he is. Trust God because he's God. God is God. He is faithful. He cannot deny himself. That will never change. That will never change. Even though we're faithless, he remains faithful. Amen. Let's pray.